Hello, and welcome. <laughs> to can't Gotham believe it gets Runs. you every single time. <laughs> I just, I was giving you a, a little bit of pause. My volume's too loud. I was giving you a little bit of pause uh, this time. I was doing you a favor, which you seem <laughs> to have thrown upon the ground. <laughs> Spat upon, certainly. Welcome to Got the Runs, the Thanks. comics podcast with and who's this? Are you saying this? Not the little guy. The mini no, that's me, yeah. <laughs> the comics podcast with all the sexual tension of a guy and his dead girlfriend who he misses so much. He does miss her quite quite a bit, <laughs> seems like. <laughs> Where today we are discussing, we're continuing our Ed Brubaker miniseries covering, covering Daredevil the man without fear! Exclamation mark. A recurring uh, theme in these uh, issues, I would say. So true, and that's a that's a huge change. <laughs> a, a comic book with themes, as we previously discussed. Uh-huh. Yes, we are covering Ed Brubaker's seminal run on Daredevil issues eighty-two through ninety-nine, and you know what? Comics are good again. <laughs> they sure are. Although I don't know if I'd call this seminal because it is very much receiving the baton from the preceding run and continuing in a fairly similar tone. Although we, we maybe will talk about some of the differences that I perceive. Okay, it's merely award-winning then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> it's only uh, only the recipient of multiple Eisners. <laughs> can't yes. can't be said to be seminal, unfortunately. <laughs> I was worried when like when it starts with the the narration boxes, like right off the yeah. bat in issue eighty two. I was like, oh no, this is like Dark Knight Returns core. Mm-hmm. Like not it, not that I dislike Dark Knight Returns, yeah. but like. Well, yeah, it is extremely Batman-y because of the number of times he says my city primarily. And like, <laughs> especially like when he finally says Hell's Kitchen, I was just like picturing a script that just had like Gotham scratched out and Hell's Kitchen like <laughs> jotted in above it. Um, it is it is very Dark Knight core, but that's also sort of like there's a weird there's a weird kind of like cross pollination between Daredevil and Batman because of the historical overlap in creators, especially Frank Miller, of course. Um, sure. But the two-way influence on each other is certainly has been palpable really since the 70s and continues to be to this day. Yeah, I guess like he is kind of the most Batman Marvel superhero there is, right? Where it's yeah, like, like sometimes people will sometimes bring up Moon Knight, which I don't think is really... Moon Knight's like crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the argument that the people would make is that Batman is also crazy, but Batman sure. is more crazy in like a daredevil kind of way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the other one who some t- like people will sometimes bring up is Cyclops, not necessarily because what? of he's he's like the prep time Batman sort of. This was very much like um the adjacent to the run that we just read, Warren Ellis started writing um astonishing x-men and sort of like it's kind of crazy <laughs> yeah it is a little crazy um and and i would even say this is like present somewhat in the joss whedon run as well but he they sort of like envision 
Cyclops as this kind of like master strategist. Actually, this was in the Brubaker run too. There's like that scene. Remember right. that scene where he's like watching he's the animals the, fight? The yeah, they're like, fight? He's a tactical yeah. genius. Yeah. Um, and so the thought behind it is that like he has a superpower, but his superpower is basically like that he has a punch gun <laughs> like built sure. into his body. Sure. And like he doesn't have super strength or super speed or like super intelligence or anything like that. And his superpower is really just like a minor kind of like supplementary offensive tool. And so the fact that he has like trained himself to be able to lead these people who are so much like kind of higher up on the power scale than him and like Wolverine. Yeah. And and like hold his own and be the field leader. And he's this tactical genius, et cetera, et cetera. People are like, that's basically just like Batman on the Justice League. So there, yeah, I I don't really buy that one either. I think that is a more like I think Batman and Daredevil are linked in terms of kind of like tone and theme for like decades, whereas that sort of development with Cyclops is more of like a 2000s thing when people started getting really into the sort of like competence porn genre and like basically all of a sudden like every superhero that doesn't really have superpowers, they have to like be a genius or like be a master martial artist or something. Or like, I, right. I feel like the number one big example of this is, um, what's his name? Not Pre- cipher on the, uh, X-Men whose power was to understand any language. And this was like around the time when they were like, including body language. So he's a Kung Fu master now. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Or like Cassandra Kane also comes to yeah, mind. Well, she, I guess well, she is like even more Daredevil almost. Yeah. And she's like created to be like, she was trained from birth to be like uh, a master yeah. assassin. Yeah. Whereas Cypher previously was like an 80s computer geek who was like, have you heard about these IBMs that they're making? She is the opposite of Cypher where it's like, she is so good at interpreting body language that she yes. can understand people. Yeah, except then also, like, she can't really understand people. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what's sort of interesting about Cassandra Kane. One of, uh, I would argue, one of the most underserved characters in uh, the DC universe, perhaps. She'd probably be bigger than she is. She's very cool. Yeah, she's a, she's a casualty of the sort of, like, post... I get, Who would it be post? She should be, like, the Spider-Gwen of DC, almost. Yeah... Yeah, she's she's just like there's a lot of characters who kind of came to prominence in the like Chuck Dixon and like shortly post Chuck Dixon era who like by the time Grant Morrison started writing, um, I guess it was Bat- Detective Comics, Batman, Batman, he was writing by the time Grant Morrison started up their run. Um, a lot of those characters had just sort of like fallen by the wayside. Sure. And then New 52, like really puts the nail in the coffin for a lot of them. So like Tim Drake would be another one of those characters who was like huge in the nineties and then sort of just like disappears by the time we hit 2010 Stephanie Brown, another one, a big, big casualty of the new 52 there. Which is funny because Tim Drake is like Tim, Tim Drake is like arguably the most important Robin. (laughs) And was like weirdly the poster boy for one year later, right? Because that that was like yeah, he like it was got like a new Tim Drake suit. is Red Robin now. Yeah, so he he well for one year later he got a new suit that was like moving towards the Red Robin design, but the like full on Red Robin was after Batman died. That was when he like right became Robin or Red Robin rather. Right. Yum. Um, 
but Daredevil, yes. Yeah. So I, I have the uh, the thing here where he's talking. He's like, it's like a rabid dog escaped from the pound. Half scared, half psychotic, running wild. Running with the junkies and the mobsters and the killers. Mm-hmm. Ready to tear the throat right out of Hell's Kitchen all over again. <laughs> Yeah, just like all the all I feel like anytime someone has an overwrought internal like narration where they refer to junkies, I'm like, this is Batman. Right. <laughs> everyone is like a junkie. Yeah, or that's true. In the eyes of Batman and Rorschach, everyone is a junkie. <laughs> <laughs> but I do I there is also like a a very deliberate sort of bait and switch that's happening here because as I mentioned, this is a baton right. pass from Bendis, um, who More like a freaking Billy Club pass. Yeah, truly, uh, a cane that turns into a Billy Club pass. One of the things that is kind of unique about this run is that Bendis ends his run on a cliffhanger, and not a like, not, not in the same sense that Uncanny X Men ended on a cliffhanger, but like his the the. His last issue ends with Matt Murdock like being sent to prison and the director of the FBI being like Kingpin and Daredevil killing each other in prison sounds like a dream come true. The end. And then it's like okay. new creative team. So I I was like that almost takes something away from it for me because I was like, oh, there's like this mysterious plot that like <laughs> it's like, why does someone want like Daredevil and Kingpin to be in prison together? Like. What is like the motive behind this? Mm-hmm. Well, that, 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 that is one. sort of like that stuff is all from Brubaker. The things that Bendis basically left were just like it's it's like almost like a hilariously like bad teammate type thing to do in like comics where the expectation is sort of that like when you come off a run, you either sort of like reset things back to status quo or you leave like the playing field pretty open for the new status quo to be set. And he ends his run with like, everyone knows that Matt Murdock is Daredevil and he just got sentenced to prison. Okay, bye. (laughs) Um, That's really good. Which is like, yeah, in some ways I'm like, what a terrible place to like leave the next person who has to take it over. And yet at the same time, I'm like, it's kind of a fun challenge to be like, you're taking on this book and your job, like your first job is like resolve this big cliffhanger that that, that the last creative team just like went out on. Um, especially when the last creative team was like writing a really well-received book that everybody loved. But so it is this sort of bait and switch where it's like, wait, he's like out in, in these streets as he calls them several times, um, <laughs> the junkies. <laughs> like fighting people, what's going on. I thought he just got sentenced to prison and then it's like, and there he is, he is in prison. So who is running around in a daredevil costume? And it is like, I think one of the things that's so impressive about this run is that he takes what seems like a creatively like handcuffed situation and then immediately both tells a good story about Daredevil in jail and is like, and here's like two genuinely compelling mysteries that are like directly like they're they're only interesting in the context of Daredevil is in jail. <laughs> in, right. In that it's like, who's this other person running around as Daredevil and who has like conspired to put Daredevil in jail and like is is pulling all these strings for everything that's going on. Right. And I think, you know, we've I think we've talked about this many times before, but like, you know, it's the idea where putting creative constraints on yourself 
kind of like forces you to tell a better story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, like instantly, like basically like from like the first page, like as soon as they cut to Daredevil in jail, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Yeah, as soon as as soon as you see Daredevil in jail, it's like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> and like so it it also basically sets the table for Brubaker to do one of the things that I think he is like the singular best in the business at, which is like basically like draw on the iconography of characters who are well-established and like the recognition with the fan base to make them seem like even cooler because you like frame them as being super cool in universe. So like to have daredevil be in jail and then like, it's like, Oh, and he has to interact with like all these criminals, but it's basically just like a million opportunities for daredevil to like, give someone like a hard look and then be like, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean, (laughs) which is like, he's just so good at it. And then like the issue when, when Punisher like kills a pimp to join him in jail, when he does the thing, like he puts his arms behind his head and it causes his jacket to open up and reveal the skull. (laughs) And everyone is just like, (gasps) that's very good. And even like, like when Kingpin tells Turk to let, bullseye out and he's like give him these <laughs> like yeah. the fact that he's able to make a deck of cards be like oh no <laughs> bullseye's gonna get his signature deck of cards <laughs> i mean he kind of is of course famously we're recording on discord famously your discord avatar is mm, yes. colin farrell as bullseye <laughs> uh specifically the shot where he's pointing to the bullseye that's on his forehead but that is in itself uh, as if to say like, who do you think i am yeah that's like the idea of having him having like the scarred bullseye in his head is like from the bendis run because daredevil and bullseye fight and he like grabs like a piece of asphalt off the street and carves a bullseye into his forehead which is yeah truly truly crazy but yeah just like and it's like oh and he's got the ace of spades sitting on the top just like in that classic like bullseye like if you like google bullseye the first thing you'll see is like a picture of him in his costume he's like hey like doing a joker grin and holding up (laughs) the ace of spades so Anyways, he's just like really good at that kind of thing. And we saw it a little bit in X-Men as well. But I do think that he's able to like really flex that here. Yeah, Flexman almost. Mm, um, <laughs> do we can, can we talk about Bendis quickly? I think we have sure. talked about it a couple times, but like it almost feels like and maybe I'm off base here, but like it almost feels like they were grooming Brubaker to be the next Bendis in some way or like saw him as the kind of guy who could be a Bendis yeah I mean it's it's like it's sort of funny that you say that because one I think Brubaker is like a little bit I don't actually I'm not sure if he's older than Bendis but he's definitely like being in the industry longer than Bendis and definitely in like the mainstream industry especially longer than Bendis they're the same age uh, oh, there More you go. But like, it's it, it. There's like, he's in a funny position where it's like he is one of their superstar kind of talents because he now has Ultimate Spider-Man under his belt, which like launched the Ultimate Universe uh, and was a massive success. He has Alias under his belt, which launched the Max line, which is their like adult, like mature line, and Jennifer Garner's career. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> And, and that was like really well received and uh, a great success, as someone once said. And then he also has just done Daredevil, which is like, 
not like a bestseller topping the charts, but again, like critically extremely well-received. It puts him in this like spot where he's like, when you're talking about like great daredevil runs, it's like, well, you've got Miller Bendis. Like he's the second person that you mention after Miller, which is just sort of like a prestige growing thing. Sure. And yet at the same time, like by the time that Brubaker is taking over daredevil, he has like just started on Avengers, which is really like, right. that's, that's sort of like the moment when they handed him the reins to be like, you're the guy who like decides what the like meta narrative of the universe is now. Yeah. So he's like, he's like a superstar creator. And yet he's not really like the Bendis as you would conceive of him in like 2010, 2011, 2012, where it's like this guy literally like makes up the like overarching story of the entire Marvel universe and has for like a long time. But he also writes House of M. So he like, did. It's like, yeah, he did write House of M. That's true. And so they're weirdly like giving him like the same arc almost where it's like you do an X-Men thing. Again, mm-hmm. Obviously, House of M is like bigger than like well, Deadly and, Genesis or anything like that. But. Yeah. But this is also sort of like the funny thing is that at this point or like when when he did House of M, it's like the big the like the big man on campus for Marvel does X-Men stuff. And then he basically turned Avengers into the book where it's like, oh, no, actually, the big man on campus does Avengers stuff because he like he he made Avengers the book that was like the hot title, the big seller um, and like the centerpiece of all of the big sort of like universe events. So I think that Deadly Genesis and House of M both sort of represent like giving a hot youngish talent sort of like a kick at the, you know, architect can in a sense. And it didn't really like work out for either of them. And part of that is because like Joss Whedon is sort of stealing the thunder for everything X-Men related that's happening around that time. And just sort of like X-Men has become such a sort of like lodestone in some ways that it's like hard to get people who aren't already like the x-men people really invested in x-men stuff right and so they kind of have to like go out to other things which then people are like oh this is like different this is fresh this is like exciting and that's more so sort of when they really kind of like hit their strides right yeah it is really like a universe unto itself in a lot of ways um, especially because there are like six comics that are solely devoted to being about the X-Men and ancillary characters. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, so he ends up on Daredevil and I feel like I almost feel like this is like where his career is going to go from here on out. Yeah, I was sort of like surprised in my like this is the first time I've come back to these comics in probably close to five years, maybe even a little longer. And I was sort of shocked, like how much crime and like pulp noir stuff there is as compared to superhero stuff where it's like there's a lot of issues where he like just doesn't even put on the Daredevil costume. Well, I mean, the whole first arc is about him not putting on the Daredevil costume. And yeah. like, there are superpowers, but it's like his superpowers are like you could replicate what he can do with like technology or with just like you know being well connected or like whatever a detective Mm -hmm. can do it's like yeah like 
him being able to like hear Foggy getting stabbed is like he could just hear about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then like, but then that's being leveraged for like a good moment. Yeah, yeah, it is like. I think Not there's killed. a lot of sort of detective-y stuff in it. I think there's a lot of noir stuff in it. I think there's a smattering of... I'm, I can't decide whether I think it's more kind of pulpy or more sort of James Bond, although I guess James Bond is basically like a pulpy spy novel. Sure. But like the whole like the whole arc after the prison arc where he goes on like... Where he goes to Monaco? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> you thought that was like James Bond? <laughs> yeah. It's just... it is It is very interesting to see how many genres he's sort of playing in where I don't think like sometimes when you have that happen, it feels like when he has to like put on the superhero costume, it's sort of like, all right. And of course we're obligated at least once every three issues to like have him put on the daredevil costume and have a fist fight with someone. (laughs) I don't think it ever really falls into that trap, but yeah, I do, especially the issues that we've kind of covered so far. It's almost more like, it's like half crime pulp noir, a quarter like legal drama, and then like a quarter <laughs> sure. superhero book. <laughs> sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like there are a lot of like the the last arc in the set of issues that we read with the gladiator, like that felt very like police legal procedural to me mm-hmm. in the terms of like it's sort of like twisty and turny and like there's an overarching mystery but then it has like individual elements that mm-hmm. are like pretty exciting yeah and you can definitely feel the ways in which that is a more comfortable sort of zone for him as compared to something like x-men that was so so superhero and like start i mean i'm sure he chose to like start things off with the big space opera but like yeah, it you can weird. you can tell where he feels a lot more at home in these issues for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's another cool thing that he really like gets into, and I guess like again, it's like it's superhero, but it's also something that could easily be replicated by being about a detective or a cop or whatever, is like he really gets into the grind of like, oh, you do this every single night. Yeah, yeah. I do find that like sometimes it's it's interesting the ways in which you can feel some creators almost be like bored of having to do the superhero stuff where like in in like Silver Age comics when they go on patrol it's like this is ba- like this is really what the book is like about like Spider-Man swinging around the city and like thinking about his problems right. uh, and then and then he like encounters a crime and it's related to whatever sort of the big story is blah 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 whatever Whereas, like, for example, I don't think Brubaker is yet at this point bored with those sorts of things. But, like, when he has Daredevil out on patrol, the, like, the fights are just happening as, like, a visual sort of, like, filler. Well, what he's actually doing is being, like, how am I going to get Melvin out of this? (laughs) Like, he's thinking about, like, I wonder if Melvin's psychosis is real. Well, the image is him, like, beating up a bunch of, like, toughs. (laughs) And it's like, we we don't even really get the, like, what crime is he stopping? Couldn't for a million dollars tell you for most of them. He's just, like, beating guys up. And I think that is sort of, like, a risk of some, some superhero comics is that, like, at some point, like, just beating up random normal guys on the street is like so mundane that it's it's almost like hey we don't we can just like skip these and have him think about this like at home <laughs> like you don't have to <laughs> sure. 
but I do think that he like I think that that sort of reflects how a superhero would feel also because like we've already seen in the prison arc like mm-hmm. him just like go raid mode the raid I mean the yeah movie. well I mean even like he's also again following Bendis here they showed a flashback to it in that sort of like Mila Donovan focused issue um but there's like I've never an, heard of <laughs> that's because um if there is something carrying over from Bendis's run that I think he does genuinely feel handcuffed by it's Mila but um there's a, there's like an issue where he fights like a hundred Yakuza <laughs> that's like the flashback you see where he's like fighting all those guys it's like he just spends the whole issue fighting like a hundred Yakuza and so it's like well if we've established that he can literally do a like 1v100 fight and survive yeah. like how interesting is it really to show him just fighting like Joe liquor store robber? Right. And I feel like that's like, and you know, they sort of talk about that later on, like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the parts when he is like, especially back from Monaco and like going on patrol and stuff, like there is a sense that it's like, this is too easy for him to some extent. Mm-hmm. And so like, he does just like start thinking about other stuff. Yeah. And, when and he's I, out on his patrols. Yeah. There is also an element like, I mean, I've never lived in like a truly big city, but I am always also when they minimize the crimes that much, I'm kind of like, how many carjackings happen in like a given week? Because it seems like you stop a lot of them. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I mean, like, (laughs) surely I know this is like a running thing in a lot of books, especially Mm -hmm. Batman, but it's like, surely crime would go down. Uh, and especially because like think, yeah <laughs> because people are like we can't like there's at least one guy who's like we shouldn't have gone into hell's kitchen like this yeah. is famously the yeah. daredevil's area and then and then I'd i was like be beaten up by spider-man than sure. <laughs> like chance running into daredevil sure and then i was like oh like there there must be like 10 given superheroes operating at any given time in new york city on a mm-hmm. given night yeah, especially like <laughs> maybe less so at this point because Brubaker has taken over Captain America and turned him into more of a sort of like governmental, like espionage type agent more figure. But like, sure. I always think about it in terms of so there's like a storyline in Alias, which is only a couple of years prior, where Jessica Jones like accidentally gets like some information about Captain America's secret identity because she like gets a picture of him going out on patrol and it's like, Oh yeah. Like the idea that like captain America very recently, like going out on patrol was like one of his story elements. And the idea that he like had a secret identity, it's like, yeah, it really was a thing that it was like, there aren't that many heroes who are like, I don't patrol. I like go where Nick Fury tells me to go. That's almost more of like an MCU and like ultimates influence that didn't really penetrate the sort of like main Marvel universe until until like <laughs> Avengers got really big, basically. Right. Yeah. I mean, like even like Captain America, we we famously I don't know where it came from, but have that one issue of Captain America mm-hmm. in our Captain childhood America home. number two by Mark Wade and Ron Garney, of course. Sure. To the Smithsonian. So. Exactly. He's at the Smithsonian. And I, I was like, I guess that he's that's like kind of normal. But yeah, I can't really imagine Captain America like being in a situation mm-hmm. like that. Certainly not like yeah, on a nightly patrol. It, but like, that is like Washington, so much. Yeah. 
it is it is something that like the slice of life part of the book gets completely removed basically by Brubaker. But if you go back to like like Mark Grunewald, who was the guy who wrote Captain America for a long time in the sort of 80s and 90s, there's a lot more of that slice of life kind of stuff where you like see him hanging around his apartment with like his supporting cast in the same way that like like Daredevil is at the office with like Foggy and Becky Blake or like you would see Spider-Man like down at the coffee bean or whatever that shop is called with like Harry Osborn <laughs> and Mary Jane. Like it, there, there was like he he like had stories like that where it's just like here's this insanely ripped like <laughs> artist sure. hanging out at his apartment with his like fellow 20 something New York friends. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, it does. It is like a, a kind of crazy evolution of the character in some ways to be like oh that guy no he i mean i guess it's more crazy that that was ever a thing for him but yeah yeah that now it's much more so like oh he's the man out of time who like can't really connect with anyone who's not a soldier because like soldiers have basically been the same people from like 1945 to today (laughs) right uh, and then on the flip side, he sends Daredevil to Monaco <laughs> to like be a high roller in a casino. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, there, there's like those stories like that one always jar me a little bit. Like I like that story, but it's funny that Daredevil has this reputation of being a like, oh, he's like the boots on the ground, like street level superhero who you know fights fights like everyday kind of crime and like bendis's run has that reputation and this run has that reputation but then like every so often there will be a thing where it's like well there is that issue where he fights a hundred yakuza and there is that like three issue storyline where he goes to like a superhero's like people who are saved by superheroes support group so that he can kill a like demon ninja baby that's sure. about to be birthed. And there is that one arc where there are a lot he of... goes to Monaco and <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like has some like super bullfighter. Yeah. And has like, I mean, I guess it is very noir the setup, but it's also a sort of like psychological erotic thriller. Sure. And I guess a lot of noir stories are psychological erotic thrillers. <laughs> they are. They're kind of trapped in this, uh, what is it? <laughs> Six psychosexual game with their wives. You could say that. No one gets that joke except us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that is a really strange story. And I didn't really think about it in the moment because I was like, in my mind, I was like, of course he's got to go to Monaco. <laughs> which I think is like the great thing about Brubaker's story because we've talked about me and Noir before and how I like I don't really like it how it feels like you're just sort of being kept in the dark a lot of the times mm-hmm. whereas with this I felt like there was a lot more propulsion where it's like it feels less like characters are like spinning their wheels and more mm-hmm. like there's just a big ladder you have to climb to like get to the truth or like get to who is ultimately behind all of this. Yeah. And even like, I was trying to remember like, is Alton Lennox, like, is there a reveal about who Alton Lennox is? And then you get to it. I was instantly like, like, that's a fake guy. Yeah. (laughs) But then you get to it and it's like, oh no, he was a real guy. And then he like got murdered (laughs) before, (laughs) before you could like get any information from him. He is really just ultimately a normal lawyer, which I found very funny. Um, but that that is the kind of thing where I feel like I should be frustrated that like when he finally finds him, he's dead. And yet 
that is the sort of kind of like play with anticlimax that you have to like really be able to kind of like walk the tightrope on to be able to tell a good noir story. Because if it's like, if you get to that moment and it's like, so like, what was the point of the past, like nine issues where basically what he was focused on was like, I need to, to, to talk to this guy. And then he's just dead. And it's like, okay, so, so now he's just going to find a completely separate unrelated way to like get the information he's looking for. And yet, Like, I don't have that feeling where I'm like, well, what else was he going to do? He had to chase the leads available and then like, you know, get to get lucky a a different way in the end. I don't know. It's I can't explain exactly why I didn't find that frustrating, but I'm just like, no, he knew he knew when to like pull the plug and like leave him feeling like it's, it's more so like it's so frustrating and demoralizing for him that for us as readers, it's like perfect character moment <laughs> of like way to way to like leave your hero down in the dumps and like he's really gonna have to dig deep to overcome this setback <laughs> yeah and i think a big part of it and i don't really have an answer as to why this is but i feel like he is just really good at making you care about the characters mm-hmm. and then that i think that is what makes it easier to be like no, he didn't find the guy. Um, like, so, because like, it's not really about the story. It's about like we want to see X happen. Like, we want to see Matt Murdock get out of jail. Mm-hmm. And so, by like being like, he's not out of jail. <laughs> the guy's dead. And it's like, no, <laughs> he I has to go to back and out. be like, help me, please. <laughs> <laughs> the best bit in this book. <laughs> it is crazy that that story arc ends with the Punisher pretending to take him hostage <laughs> so they can fly a helicopter away from jail. Yeah, I mean, if there is... Again, I, I like this. I can't understand why I think this is good. But... It is like kind of a crazy character decision for the Punisher to be like, I need to go check up on my friend Daredevil. He seems like he's going to start killing people for doing crimes. And that's really more my thing. I think that would be bad for him personally. So I'm going to go to jail and just be a quick like object lesson in like, don't be the Punisher, man. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, like it's is- like, why? why does it like there's literally no reason that he goes in other than he's like. I'm concerned for my good friend Daredevil, a person (laughs) who famously hates me. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) They're playfully antagonistic. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I mean, like, uh, there is, is, like, meat on that bone in terms of, like, the Punisher doesn't, like, enjoy being the Punisher. And there's, like, I feel like it has been a thing before where it's, like, someone else basically becomes the Punisher and then he, like, kills them because he's basically, like... When my like war, I'm I'm like worse than the criminals almost. And when my like war on crime is over, I will like kill myself as the last (laughs) criminal. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) is his like his like commitment to like he doesn't think it's good that he's around, and so he does like kind of try and stop people from like becoming him when he can. But then also, there's a really good Punisher run, which is basically about him being like, now I will teach you to become the Punisher like me. Sure. And, you know, he loves and respects the police. Of course. Yeah. And they love and respect him. (laughs) They certainly do. (laughs) Who is that for Batman? Who's the guy that's like, 
I guess Azazel <laughs> or whatever that guy's name. Um, Azrael. Yeah. <laughs> Who's Azazel? Yeah, I mean, I feel like Batman is almost more so in the Punisher role, where his whole thing is like, don't become Batman, and the only like people who he lets sort of like enter the like kind of bat family are the people who it's like you're already like if i don't do this you'll become something like worse than what batman is basically or your life will just like be over right but the punisher like kills indiscriminately like yes uh somewhat discriminately sure i suppose (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah it would like there's there's a few different people you can point to who would be like batman but like too far gone basically that he's had to fight over the years but Azrael certainly is a good one to uh to point to i'm trying to think there's someone else who's like really obvious that i'm not thinking of but oh jason todd of course is like the kind of classic like he learned from batman he trained with batman now he's too far gone and he is like still fighting crime but every time batman finds him he's basically like stop doing this (laughs) Sure. Then Jason Todd's like, or what? And Batman is like, I guess you got me there. (laughs) (laughs) I am, in fact, powerless. (laughs) Literally. Do we want to sort of go beat by beat here? Not beat by beat, but like talk about the story arc separately. I feel like we've kind of been jumping around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because they are separate and yet they are also in some ways like one yeah. one kind of like maxi arc. Like even we finished, this is true of the last arc we did as well, which we haven't really touched on yet, but it's really both kind of like part three of the longer overarching story and also like part one of sort of like act two of that story. where like it sort of like ends not on a cliffhanger but it's like it ends with like a lot of balls in the air that obviously like the next story arc is gonna like pick up and run with yeah i don't really know because (laughs) the last arc it labels itself as uh so like to the devil his due is the name of the arc Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and then the, like the final issue that we read issue 99 labels itself as part five of five. Yeah. But then and then it ends up like a massive cliffhanger. <laughs> like the last part is like, we found out who the villain was. We didn't defeat him. He actually defeated you. <laughs> and also like, and also there's a reveal that like he has had a big secret plot the entire time as well. Yeah. Uh, this also is, I guess the other side of the coin of what I was talking about with Brubaker earlier, like knowing how to sort of leverage characters or like the audience's familiarity with the characters. The downside of that is that he, like many other writers will sometimes give extremely minor characters that treatment. So like in this last issue, when Dakota North is like, does the name Cranston mean anything to you? (laughs) And like they, they never even reveal this character's like villain name, which is Mr. Fear, as we'll learn. Yes, I uh, Googled this. Yes, we'll learn later. He's literally just introduced in these issues as Larry Cranston. <laughs> I I had a thing about the characters' names as well, where like no one gets called by a name 
every like it's like Melvin Potter and they all have really funny names because I feel yeah, like they like, were all made up in like the 60s and 70s. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like Melvin Potter, Larry Cranston, Wilson mm-hmm. Fisk, like <laughs> all of the greats. Fancy here. Dan. <laughs> sure. Um, the other thing I was worried about uh, when she was like, there was this high school teacher. His name's Cranston. I was like, are we going to see Heisenberg? Mm, of course yeah and it's like maybe jesse pinkman is the guy who just got pushed in front of that train yeah that would really that would suck that was him like, after everything he went through in el camino yeah and then after <laughs> she after daredevil's wife pushed someone in front of a train i was like she's almost as bad as skylar <laughs> who we hate <laughs> um Never so mr. <laughs> mr fear aka larry cranston who is it cran man as i said introduced like his his identity is brought up by a character saying does the name cranston mean anything <laughs> to you and that is supposed to be as if like the suggestion <laughs> of the question is that the answer is yes <laughs> yeah uh, it's it's treated as though like batman's love interest just got home and it's like oh a card for me in the mail <laughs> and she like opens it up and a joker card falls out of it it's like basically how it's treated larry cranston has appeared in 12 issues prior to this <laughs> he was in a four issue story arc in 1972 and then he was in a five-issue story arc in 1997, and then a three-issue story arc in 1998. So he has not been seen at this point for nine years, and he was, like, barely a character before this. And yet it's like, oh no, Larry Cranston is back. Cranston. <laughs> Oh, so, but yes, let's, uh, let's, I just had to go on my Larry Cranston rant, my Crant, if you will. Um, Sure. And now, yeah, let's, let's briefly summarize the three different story arcs that are here. Yes, we can do our 60 second plot summary. Um, 60 seconds per arc, I pray. (laughs) Per issue. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll I'll take a stab at the first one, which is called, okay. of course, the the Devil in Cell Block D. Incredible I mean, title, <laughs> classic stuff. Oh, these are actually. Oh, I'm gonna have trouble here because, like, the <laughs> other thing that I, you know, compared to other noir stuff, the other thing that I was very appreciative is like, I have a really good sense of like who is who, whose side is each person on like mm-hmm. what are their what do they individual, want yeah <laughs> like their individual motivations and the way that like they can like intertwine with other people like the mm-hmm. way that like even characters who i assume you have never encountered before like dakota north and becky blake 99.9 percent of these characters i've never heard of or seen before <laughs> uh it's like i know the kingpin i know daredevil and i know foggy nelson that's basically you don't know ben yurik sure i know ben yurik of course you know ben yurik come on but I do confuse him a lot with Ben Parker, the clone. And Ben Yurick was like a hobgoblin at some point. Uh, no, Phil Yurick was the hobgoblin at one oh. point. Um, now I'm trying to remember because who plays Ben Yurick in the Daredevil movie? Uh, Casey Affleck? No. <laughs> it's not Casey Affleck. I think it might be Joey Pants. <laughs> It is Joey Pants. That's strong. I was like, I know he's in that movie, 
And I can I'm picturing like the scene at the very beginning where he like throws down his cigarette and it lights the DD logo that he's drawn in gasoline on the subway floor. But I was like, is Joey Pants Ben Urich or is he the cop that was like on the scene when Ben Urich shows up? Sorry. Anyways, sure. continue. <laughs> I mean, the great maybe outside of Ben Affleck, although I think that's fine casting. But Ben Affleck, I think like it's just generally kind of low energy. I don't know if he's suited to being a superhero <clears throat> respectfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I got worried that Batman fans wouldn't come after us. Really well cast movie, I feel like. Maybe not. Definitely Carter. Michael Clark Duncan is inspired for sure. Colin Farrell's bullseye, crazy but great. Yeah, he John Favreau's foggy like crazy Nelson. energy. Yeah, that's a good call. I forgot that he was foggy Nelson. For a second, I th- it's David Keith as Jack Murdoch. And for a second, I was like, Keith David, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I like where your head's at, but. <laughs> and of course, right. Ellen Pompeo is Karen Page. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. I either forgot that or never knew it. I never knew it. Certainly. Oh, it's I, because she's like barely in it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of like Deborah Ann Wall or whatever her name is that. Uh, place her in the netflix series sure who so has a much larger role is that any good it's not right or it's you you're gonna say it's okay the first season is pretty good i wasn't crazy about the second season i don't the truth is and this is one that will really rile the people up i'm not crazy about vincent d'onofrio as kingpin sure um and he's like that's like the whole thing in season two and then i never got around to watching season three because at that point i was pretty much just checked out of all of the netflix stuff although apparently season three is pretty good sure but apparently they also do born again so now that they're doing uh like daredevil colon born again (laughs) mcu like disney plus series people are like that was like the last thing that you just did though (laughs) right it probably won't be that arc though maybe no, I, the name I, I don't know why you would go. I, I don't know why you would call it Born Again if you weren't going to do. Well, because it's like he's on Disney Plus now. Born Again. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Although it's like also. Well, yeah, I don't know. They burnt like they used Nuke for Jessica Jones. But who knows if they'll actually care at all about that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure it will be like Civil War and Winter Soldier. There will be some like basic kind of motions of the plot are inspired by but the details will be different sure nuke's so swag do you think that they're worried about using nuke because he's always trying to get red pilled mm, well he's always trying to get many kinds of pills i suppose but uh yeah one of our more pilled characters definitely <laughs> by far i would say you think by far our most well, pilled no, character not our what most about the main him? character in um limitless <laughs> No, because he only takes one pill a day, right? That's true, but I, I don't know. I think Nuke... Maybe he takes Well, one. Nuke seems like he's probably on a pretty intense regimen. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there are probably some characters who are sick who take large quantities <laughs> of pills. Of pills. Yeah. <laughs> what about Aunt May? <laughs> sure. Rimey yeah. Trilogy era. I bet she's pretty pilled. <laughs> a lot of supplements. Um, Wikipedia says Nuke's most distinguishing feature is an American flag tattooed on his face. Uh, I don't know if I'd... I personally think of his flat top haircut. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is so stupid. It's a hit. (laughs) Okay, 
<laughs> summarize summarize the devil in cell block D. Okay, so Daredevil. Okay, tell me why Daredevil got sent to jail. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll, well, so it is as they say several times throughout this, basically for being Daredevil. Um, right. But there, so in Bendis's run, sort of like the big storyline is that coming out of Born Again, Born Again. Kingpin finds out Daredevil's identity, uses it to like torture him personally, but that's kind of like where it ends. Um, and so in Bendis's run, one of his like minor lieutenants finds out that Kingpin knows who Daredevil is and has like never really done anything about it other than born again. Um, but he's like, but, but like it's, that was a long time ago and like you've known this whole time and he continues to like <laughs> make your life terrible. And so he's like, I'll make a name for myself by like tipping off this guy I know at the FBI and tipping off the tabloids and we're going to like expose Daredevil's identity. And so, yeah, he gets like outed publicly as Daredevil and then that proceeds to have like all these legal proceedings associated with it. And they don't charge him until close to the end of the run, which is because there's something Kingpin has like, uh, oh, oh yeah, that's what it is. So Kingpin uh, gets arrested and basically like trades his like files that prove that Matt Murdock is Daredevil to the FBI. And so they arrest him basic like for for all the associated crimes that you would have to commit by being daredevil and then also right. like being a lawyer who prosecutes or and or defends a bunch of people who daredevil has like beaten up or sure yeah. like i think i think there's a mention of like obstruction of justice at some point but the, the implication is that there are a litany of crimes that he has been charged yeah. with yeah so the devil in cell block d is like daredevil's in jail kingpins in jail and then it's like the fbi is conspiring for some reason (laughs) like basically they want like you said they want the daredevil and kingpin to like kill each other in prison Mm -hmm. and to that end they are sort of like blackmailing the warden of the prison to try and like bring them all it's like daredevil and kingpin and a bunch of other criminals as well Mm -hmm. um and they're trying to like basically like bring them all together and just like let them have at it, which really backfires on them, quite frankly. And then at the same time, Foggy Nelson and Dakota North, who's like a detective, are trying to get him out, of course. Of course. But then Foggy Nelson gets stabbed and is presumed dead, even though we later find out he's not dead. I believed it. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I was going to ask you if you believed it. (laughs) I believed it. I was sad. And so they are. They're mostly just like in court, it seems like. Yeah, pretty much. Or or like going to visit him in jail. Right. And there's like all these connections. So who it's like these three crime bosses of some description, which I assume are all characters we know. So I think Morgan I, Morgan might be like a minor character who's appeared before, but like not really. Like I wasn't like, oh yes, of course, Morgan. But Hammerhead sure. and Black Tarantula both are established kind of like C tier supervillains for sure. Sure. And so their plan is to stage a riot, and then like while this is happening, Daredevil's like going crazy because 
Foggy Nelson is dead. And so he is like on his big revenge tour. And the whole thing is like, he's like been pushed to the edge. Yes. Um, and so they're basically their plan is to have Daredevil kill Kingpin, right? I think their their, their plan, plan is basically. I think their plan, their hope is Daredevil and Kingpin will fight during this riot, and hopefully one of them will kill the other one, and also be like so beaten up from the fight that when we show up with a bunch of shotguns and stuff, we can just like kill whoever is still alive if they haven't killed each other already. Right, and they also want to kill the warden. Maybe <laughs> I don't remember that part specifically. I well, mean, I'm sure they want to kill as many people who could potentially stop the the riot before they get a chance to kill Daredevil and Kingpin as possible. Sure, 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 sure. And so, but ultimately, that's the plan. And so then, Daredevil and Kingpin have to team up, and Kingpin also like brings Bullseye into the equation. Yes, and against without without consulting Daredevil, which makes yes. him hootie. Yes. Uh, and then Punisher also comes into the equation, like you said, because he like reads in the paper that Daredevil's having a hard time <laughs> and wants to like come comfort him. <laughs> Although it's fu- I, I for some reason remembered him playing like a bit more of a part. But when they the people riot, he just kind of like hangs out in his cell and only kills people who come to try and kill him. <laughs> yes. And then there's this like. I mean, a crazy issue <laughs> where it's just like a huge prison riot and it's like Daredevil and Kingpin like backs against the wall fighting yeah. like a million prisoners and it's crazy and cool. And then Bullseye shows up and then basically Daredevil's like, I'm Daredevil. I can't let Kingpin and Bullseye yeah, go. This is, this is the tipping point. It's not even like I can Yeah, it's can't more so just go, like especially. Yeah, he's like, man, I'm if if we're letting Bullseye out of prison, this is like too far gone even for me. Thanks to my friend the Punisher reminding me who I am. <laughs> sure, of course. And so, yes, like I said, the Punisher like <laughs> pretends to kidnap Matt Burdock and like flies him out. And then you know, I guess this is technically part of the arc, right? Where he confronts this other Daredevil. The other thread yes. is that. There's another Daredevil. We don't know who it is or why they're being Daredevil. We find out it's Danny Rand, a.k.a. Iron Fist. And he's like, he's being paid by Alton Lennox. Yeah, so Alton Lennox. And this is so another element of this that we'll talk about when we get to Iron Fist is that he has his own supporting character who is like the like in-house counsel for like Rand Corp or whatever his like billionaire company is called who has like a weird name. And so when they, that was the other thing is when they were like Alton Lennox, I was like, Oh yeah, that's like <laughs> Danny friend. Rand's lawyer guy. But his name is like Gerald something or so. He's got, he's got a crazy name too. Luciano? No, <laughs> if only, um, <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, look up what that guy's name is now, but, but no, it's uh, yeah, he's being, he has been hired because he is a hero for hire famously, even though he's a billionaire to pretend to be daredevil. Sure. And then they find out that Alton Alton Lennox, who is paying Iron Fist to be Daredevil, they're like, why was he doing this? We got to find him. And then they find his office and it's empty. But then they find out he has fled to Monaco. And so Daredevil is like, I'm going to Monaco. Yes. And also at the end, we find out Foggy Nelson is not actually dead. And oh, yes. He's in living as Everett. Um... Everett Williams or something. Yeah. yeah or Josh Williams, that. to tell you that much. Um, so he, and also Daredevil has a wife who I honestly think might be worse than Skylar. 
And I'm serious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, he does have a wife. So this was... Uh, a character who's introduced in Bendis's run. She, I mean, you, you basically got like the recap on who she is um, yeah. in that, in that issue, which what a flex to get John Romita, who was an artist on daredevil in the sixties and also very well known for his work on Marvel's like romance comics before they stopped doing romance comics to come and do a romance comic cover for that issue. Crazy pull, big congratulations to whoever, <laughs> pulled that off <laughs> i was wondering because i was like this is a cool cover um yeah and like it's, you know uh, it, it's it's cool and authentic because it is like just straight up drawn by a guy who for a long time made his living doing romance comics right um and that's a cool issue as well but we'll we'll get to that but Surely. devil and cell block d it's swag is all get out <laughs> <laughs> i mean really like Ultimately, even though we've talked for like an hour about that's ultimately my feelings on this are just like, it's so swaggy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jaron Hogarth, of course, is the name of. Uh, oh, right. That's why. Um, okay. What's her face is in the is in the Netflix show Trinity. Carrie Ann Moss. There we go. Carrie Ann oh. Moss plays Jerry Hogarth. Gender swapped Jaron Hogarth in the Netflix show. Anyways, I thought the character of Trinity was in it. No, that would be incredible. I probably would have been more into it. So (sighs) he goes to Monaco trying to chase down the Alton Lennox lead and instead gets sucked into uh, this sick psychosexual game with a woman he's never met. (laughs) Um, (laughs) His not wife. His not not wife. Well, there's also this Foggy Nelson thing. That's like an interlude, which is the first David Aha issue yes and i love his sparkling water <laughs> and that he doesn't is... he doesn't have that many issues um oh he's really like, i thought that was like a famous thing he he does do some no no it's hawkeye that he more so does okay yeah, that's he, what i was thinking of yeah and he also does iron fist he's the main artist on iron fist mm, okay but also like yeah it is crazy that it's him because it's like unrecognizable to me like it doesn't it doesn't look like his kind of what I think of his sort of signature style. And part of that might be that they're doing this like black, white and red thing for a lot of the flashbacks or like generally sort of like a muted kind of color thing. But like, I assume you have that issue open and you're looking at it right now. Yeah, super cool. Um, Do you think that maybe we were mistaken? That's actually David Maha. <laughs> No, I don't From think that. Show. I don't think that. <laughs> so just like compare that with his art from Hawkeye. Right. It which looks is like very, a completely very different. Yeah. It's like a completely different artist. I mean, that that page is particularly like kind of extra stylized. But even like I'll send you another uh, another sample here. Right. Yeah. Very, very different. Like. This is very, very noir really. The, yeah, the I, like I do think he's kind of doing a Michael Lark impression a little bit here. Sure, um, but instantly when I opened this issue, I was like, oh. New artist. Is, yeah, just like the way that Ben Herrick is drawn is like very <laughs> crazy. But yeah, like a lot of like a lot of lines, a lot of like, which is funny because the the art on Hawkeye is like very, very clean. 
Yeah, very minimalist. Um, and so, like, a lot of lines, a lot of, like, shadow, a lot of uh, chiro oscuro. Is that the, uh, am I using the right term I here? Don't, I don't know what you're even talking about. <laughs> chiro, chiro oscuro is an artistic term, which is the use of strong contrasts between light and dark. Usually bold contrasts affecting a whole composition. That's a, uh, a renaissance technique, is my understanding. So I'll send you, uh, this is from sure. Wikipedia, this is the example they use. But, you know, a lot of, like, people, like, half-bathed in shadow and right. yeah. things like that. A lot of shadow, actually. And then, of course, like you said, there's this black, white, and red flashback, which I was like, all right, he's swagging out. Um <laughs> Where he, you know, yeah, does so a we little get bit of secret, secret life of Foggy Nelson, which is kind of just a bit of maybe a filler issue. I want to say that they might have whipped together because Michael Lark was like, "I'm going to be late on the first issue of Devil Takes a Ride." Like that, Lark that Duncan. would be possibly my my suggestion. But we basically, it's it's just like kind of a character issue of Foggy thinking about his like relationship with Matt Murdock and daredevil and how he's not a coward but he's not brave whereas daredevil is of course famously the man without fear um and he tries to escape witness protection and is almost killed by the mafia but then electra saves him and is like go back to witness protection and he's like oh all right i guess i'll go back to witness protection (laughs) i thought electra was dead she's not dead she's not dead her status of dead or alive is frankly very difficult to keep track of over time for me but but she's definitively not dead and in charge of the hand at this point definitely anyway so then the devil takes a ride to monaco where he is trying to track down alton lennox and he does so by (sighs) doing casino royale (laughs) yep pretty much um he wins a lot of money and attracts the attention of uh, the daughter of Alton Lennox's only known client, Lily Luca, uh, who has like a pheromone thing going on where men smell her and become horny. It is really the exact plot of Casino Royale. <laughs> where he's like, I gotta track I mean, down this like, guy. I'm yeah. going to become I'm going to like get people's attention by winning a lot of money in a high stakes poker game. So I will get an invitation to somewhere where the villain is going to be. Yeah. So he does that and then quickly realizes that he's being played for a fool. Um, She is, in fact, in on it all, not a damsel in distress as he had presumed that she was. uh, And he is able to determine through uh, her interactions with her co-conspirators, Tombstone and a new matador, that the real person who he is after, I guess we don't see her actually tell him, but he learns that the person who has been uh, pulling all the strings, who was Alton Lennox's employer, et cetera, et cetera, was Vanessa Fisk all along. He goes to confront Vanessa Fisk. Uh, This is, of course, Kingpin's wife, for those of you who don't know uh, the Fisk family tree, and learns from her that basically... uh, his his lifelong struggle with kingpin has made her so angry that she's gonna die and her whole thing is a little nebulous (laughs) and she 
basically has like been doing all of this to him as kind of a last sick psychosexual game where <laughs> she's going to die. And then he out of a combination of like gratitude and guilt is going to become Kingpin's defense lawyer and get him out of prison, which is then exactly what happens. He does it because he <laughs> believes that like there was still a bit of the good old Vanessa that he knew uh, deep down inside of her. But uh, whether he is right about that or not, he plays right into her hand. Foggy, upon learning that he has been cleared, uh, returns and has a tearful reunion with Matt. Uh, and Lily Luca, despite it all, is out in the wind with her tasty, tasty scent free to be spread across the globe. Oh, and he gets cleared of everything. If I didn't already mention that, right? That was that was part of her part of, part of her Fisk's. her end of the the deal with the devil, if you will, was that she was going to get all of his problems basically to go away, and in return, he had to get Kingpin out of prison. Right, and then he says no, but she's like, he'll do it, <laughs> and then he does, and then he does. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, that great issue though. Sure. Yeah, I, I, it's cool. Um, so I, I am ki- like I'm with you a little bit in terms of like this is both quite her a and reversal. His motivations are just like a little unclear to me. Yeah. Uh, so I think part of that is that you are missing sort of like the backstory of her sure. role in in the Bendis stuff, in which she was sort of like as as he talks about in these issues, like the one sort of like source Conscience. of good and like positive influence in Kingpin's life. But Kingpin's son gets kind of like wrapped up in the whole scheme against uh, Daredevil and exposing his identity. He's sort of like a Fredo type um, sure. where he like wants to be part of like the Kingpin's crime empire, but he doesn't really have like the juice to be good at it at all. And so Vanessa, Vanessa has to kill him basically to like, resolve this like dilemma that he in his sort of like ineptitude has put both daredevil and kingpin into a like uncomfortable position where daredevil is like the only solution is to really is to kill you but i'm not going to do that because i don't kill people and kingpin is like that's my son i'm not going to kill him and then vanessa is just like sure anyway but so so I'm with you a little bit in terms of like the last we see of her, like that's a pretty cold blooded thing, but she does it. And she's like, that was hard, but like I I had to do it. And like daredevil, please like leave now. I just want like this chapter of our lives to be over. So it is like, yeah, it is. It is a bit of a jump from when we had last seen her, but I do think that like it's sort of, if you if you kind of move past the premise of like she's so mad that it's going to kill her and just accept the like she's dying and the like weight of what she had to do and the anger that she now holds towards both Daredevil and Kingpin for like kind of making making her do it basically has led her to craft this like devious revenge um, does make like- sense to me. But it's like, he could just not. She died. And I know that, like, it's, I just don't, even for a superhero with, like, a strong moral (laughs) code, I can't get to the point where it's like, 
even though she told me exactly what she was going to do, and I know that, like, she even says, she's like, every time Kingpin kills someone, you'll, like, have the guilt of Mm -hmm. knowing that you, like, helped to set him free. And then he's like, I have to free Kingpin because I feel too guilty. Like, guilty about Mm -hmm. what? Kingpin being in jail? (laughs) <laughs> well yeah i think i mean he is the guilty hero that's kind of his whole thing is is being sure, guilty like guilt yeah but like i do i do what i like about it is the sort of like grayness of it where she's like he's going to do it because i've manipulated him so effectively and then even though that he knows that she was trying to manipulate him he's like i'm going to do it but not for the reasons that she's saying like I'm not right it's sort of like I'm not going to do it because I feel guilty I'm going to do it because I owe it to like the person that she was not to the person who like manipulated me into this situation right um which is which is good and then when uh, Kingpin goes and is like you waited until she died and that makes me really mad I'm like that's very good yeah. And, you know, there is the element of, like, he thinks that he is, like, getting rid of Kingpin effectively by, like... Yeah, that's, that is the other part of it, right? Is that he doesn't... Well, I Like, he maybe he doesn't fully believe it, but he's not, like, I'm letting him out to, like, resume his criminal enterprises. He's like, I'm getting him out of jail, which is what I promised to do, but I'm also, like, sending him out of the country with no citizenship and, like, no real resources. Yeah. So... So there is that. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. This is maybe the arc. I don't know. I I really, really like the first arc. I thought that was like awesome. And then I think these Mm -hmm. two are most mostly like quite good. It's I guess how I feel about it. Um, And like on on a scene to scene basis, I really like basically everything. Um, But it's more that that the overarching stories aren't quite as robust, I feel like, Mm -hmm. as they are. When he's in jail, especially because you're sort of forced to have multiple different tracks running at the same time. Yeah. Because he is, like, stuck in prison and can only worry about prison stuff. You have to have Foggy or his other friends and lawyers and whomever, Mm -hmm. uh, like, out doing their own things as well, which I think is really effective. And then, you know, obviously it, it does get away from that to some degree. And starts just becoming more about just Daredevil things again. Yeah. Uh, Then we have another one-off issue, which, as I said, is kind of just a flashback issue, but also more than just a flashback issue. Establishes uh, the, the sort of inevitable decline of this relationship, which I wasn't able to find this interview poking around this time, but... Actually, now that I'm saying this, it might insanely have been something that he said on an episode of How Did This Get Made when he was on to talk about the Daredevil movie. (laughs) But I have heard him at some point, like, make a remark to the effect of, like, I was so excited to do Daredevil and I liked everything about it, except he had this, like, wife character that I just, like, didn't know what to do with. Um and so he does kind of like lay some tracks here for stuff we will talk about next time, but uh, but kind of to unburden himself of this character that he doesn't really enjoy having or know what to do with. I mean, like, 
maybe it's because of the him as the writer not knowing what to do with or like how to operate with but like i don't i don't know what the purpose of this character is ultimately i guess like uh, yeah i mean she very much in uh, like under brew baker's sort of pen falls into the like category of like the the like superhero's powerless girlfriend who is basically just there to like complicate his life narratively <laughs> yeah either like nag him or get thrown into danger yeah uh and that is pretty much all she does in these issues she is more i don't know if like fleshed out is necessarily the right word because it's not that like she gets so much more of a character focus in Bendis's run, but she just is there for to do to do more than either like cry at the window or be like thrown off a roof. Yeah, and I guess like it's funny because there is this issue which should ostensibly like give us some reason to care, give mm-hmm. us like an understanding of her that we didn't previously have, like take us outside of the daredevil pov and put us into her perspective mm-hmm. but like the main like the two big things is just like she is like so bummed out all the time <laughs> yeah well i think that is in some ways like that's sort of the new perspective that we're getting versus what was kind of her thing in sure. in the bendis run where it's like it's a lot of like this is hard but i love you so it's worth it and then in this it's like actually like she might still be saying that but this life is like a grindstone that is like gradually wearing down her psyche and like matt is not able to see the like intense effect that it's having on her yeah i it's like when you read this and i guess like this will probably be resolved in short order but like when you read this you are just like you should not be here (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is clearly like killing you (laughs) yeah and like you should get out of this marriage by pushing someone in front of a train (laughs) (laughs) and it's like yeah i mean i feel like there's almost never a good like married superhero because like even though it is ultimately maybe necessary i feel like nobody really enjoys the like the Spider-Man or the Daredevil or even the Batman to some extent, like the like he can never have a victory. Like it always has to be like a Pyrrhic victory mm-hmm. where he loses something. Yeah. I mean, that certainly is like the big complaint about the decision to do away with uh, the marriage in Spider-Man is like, can this guy not have anything? <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I guess there are ways to do it. I mean, I, it probably mostly works better when it's like a marriage between two superheroes, because then mm-hmm. it's like, cause you know, it's usually a male superhero. And so they usually have a wife and the wife is mm-hmm. usually like the helpless one who is like mm-hmm. cast in the position of constantly being like, you know, even in the, in the face of superpowers, how can they not be like the fragile person who needs to be protected? Yeah. Yeah. And I do feel like part of the issue is that like Brubaker like really just like she doesn't have a thing where it's like she is blind, which like limits, (laughs) you know, that that presents like obstacles in terms of the different ways that like especially in superhero narratives, there are ways to like show people being powerful, even in ways where like 
like Becky Blake, who is in a wheelchair, like she's in a wheelchair, but her thing is she's a lawyer now. And so she has these moments where she gets like these great character beats where she shows her prowess as a lawyer. Sure. But Mila, it's like she's a, she's a woman in a man's world, that being like the superhero world. She's a blind person without superpowers in a super powered world. And like there's like nothing else in her life other than being Matt's wife. And so it's like, how are you supposed to, how are you supposed to give her character moments when she like her, her, the only things you can show her doing are like, what should we have for breakfast? (laughs) I talk about breakfast a lot. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's like, she doesn't have superpowers. She doesn't have a job that I know of. Mm-hmm. Or like I can't. Mention. I think she does have a job that they sure talk about in the Bendis run, but I couldn't like I can't remember what it is, and it doesn't seem like Kurt Baker can either. <laughs> and she doesn't have a personality. Like she is truly just like sad all the time. Like the first time we see her is like she comes to the phone in the prison and is like, "You're being crazy," mm-hmm. and is just like sad about that. And then we get this whole issue, which is just like, "I'm sad." Mm-hmm. And it's and like it's like the thing that makes me happy is being loved by my husband Matt Murdock, <laughs> and just like it's so sure, um, it's just and so. It's, it, I think she also stands like in pretty stark contrast to Dakota North, who is like this cool PI character that like he obviously wants to write a Dakota North miniseries so bad. Like someone on editorial just let him write his Dakota North miniseries and Becky Blake, who like, especially as we go into like this next arc and she's now a partner in the firm gets like, at least gets these moments where like she has the, the conversation where she's like, I'm taking Melvin Potter on as a client. And they're like, no, you're not. And she's like, yes, I am. <laughs> and they're like, yes, you are. Yeah. And, and like basically like strong arms them into it. And, and like they, they both have those moments of like agency and power and like understanding their motivations and stuff like that. And there is just like nothing. There's nothing for Mila. Her agency is like, I go to the, the therapist to talk about how I'm sad <laughs> about my relationship with my husband. Literally Matt everything she does is just like, I'm sad. I'm tortured. And, th- and then it's like the way that I feel good is by like nagging my husband into spending more time <laughs> with me. And then like my ultimate apparently role in this set of stories, as we see at the end of this arc is I'm going to, like, again, be a victim and, like, be brainwashed into killing someone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Which brings us to this uh, To the Devil His Due, where Daredevil's back on the street, uh, and the big thing is Melvin Potter. Sure, this city. uh, Hell's (laughs) Kitchen. Um, And then Melvin Potter, who we see briefly... When Matt is in jail. Yes, Matt Matt tells him basically to like stay in his cell during the riot because he doesn't want the gladiator to come out. Right. And I didn't quite like basically he has some kind of disassociative disorder. Yeah. So he yeah, he has like psychotic delusions that he is a Roman gladiator and they're very closely like tied with his gladiator costume. And when he puts it on, he's like 
now I'm the gladiator and I kill people. Um, But like, obviously he doesn't need to be in the costume for that to happen. And there's like always concerns that if he's like attacked or in a situation that's particularly stressful or what have you, there's always like the risk that the gladiator could come out. Right. So there's this, so he like kills two people and the law firm of Foggy Nelson, Matt Murdock, and Betty Blake are tasked with defending Becky him. Blake, please. Be- sorry, Becky Blake. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And then basically it, it like it's different this time because it's like he instead of what he would usually do when he becomes the gladiator, usually he's like, I'm so sorry. I was the gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like when when like Melvin comes back, basically, he's like shoot (laughs) he yeah like he he he's like basically just like in the passenger seat when he's the gladiator and when he when he like comes back it's not like he's like oh no like what happened he's like darn it the gladiator did this (laughs) the gladiator got me but then this time he was he's like it wasn't me i don't know like i don't know what's going on it's they're like well this Mm -hmm. is different like he's lying and then also there's like some stuff happening in Hell's Kitchen, kind of. Yeah, there's like a new uh, a new kingpin basically who is oh, that's getting crime to, to be popping off. On the upside, it's not. Certainly. It's not that like there's a new kingpin, but it's like there's a power vacuum without kingpin, and sure. there's like some new shot callers around who are kind of like stoking the fires a bit hotter than they usually uh, are allowed to get. Sure. And so some team of like basically like trained guys freeze free Melvin during like his like prison prison transport thing. He they bring him basically to the gladiator suit where he like goes on a big rampage, mm-hmm. kidnaps Mila Donovan, throws her off a roof. Right. But she gets saved. And then yeah. it's like it basically he like realized he's like. I'm not doing this. Like, it's not me. Like, help mm-hmm. me. Tried to kill also, himself. So just to briefly pause, <laughs> he beats her up so much. And I'm just like, how would you explain that? Isn't it just like, like she got kidnapped by the gladiator? Oh, yeah, I guess it I guess it would be. But it's like, why did the gladiator kidnap you? The wife of Matt Murdock, the person who... <laughs> Because everyone thinks it's Matt Murdock's Daredevil. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess, I guess that is the explanation you go with. I just was like, man, it is. I would a be weird... very concerned about that. <laughs> it is a weird thing where, like, in this arc, because it's like everyone knows Matt Murdock is Daredevil, but mm-hmm. like no one can prove Can't it. Can't say so for libel reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because he like, there's like an unspoken thing where he sued the Daily Bugle off screen. <laughs> Um, I don't think it was actually the Daily Bugle, but yeah, it's it's on screen in um, in the Bendis oh, run. run? He, okay. Yeah, he sues uh, the the tabloid that like leaked him, outs him basically. Yeah, and wins. Sure. So yeah, so basically, there's that. But then also, oh, and also, Lily Luca has come to New York City from the Monaco arc. Yes. And she oh her problem is that like she stopped using the special pheromone perfume that Vanessa Fisk gave her but for some reason she still has like pheromones happening and doesn't know why. Yeah. Um and so there's that as well. And so basically we find out at the end uh of this set of issues that 
the person who's been behind this all is <laughs> Cranston, Larry Cranston, <laughs> Mr. Night Fear. school teacher. <laughs> yeah. Who is basically Scarecrow. Um, yes. Or, you know, has basically like mood, mind altering chemical powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ends with like Mila becomes like is like entered into this rage. And, you know, it, it's basically like. And again, it's like she's like set up as a nagging wife, so we believe this that she is like threatened by Lily Luca and is like, don't let her near my husband because he will like be swayed by her. And we should also mention that like Lily Luca causes you to like basically like smell your greatest desire. <laughs> yeah. She's the mirror Lily, of Lily Luca's thing is, yeah, she she makes all men horny. Yeah. And so Matt smells Karen Page, which he is guilty about. Because he's like, why don't I smell my beautiful wife? <laughs> he's and like, this is not my beautiful wife. <laughs> sure. And so we believe it when it's like, stay away from my husband. I don't want you to like be pulled, like pull him in with your wiles. Mm-hmm. But then it's she suddenly is like, I hate you so much that I'm going to kill you and tries to push her in front of a subway train. It doesn't work. She like bumps some other guy in front of a subway train. Mm hmm. And then it is revealed at the very end of these issues that we're reading that Mr. Fear has <laughs> caused this all to happen. Larry Cranston. Just also <laughs> the panel where she's like some she she pushed me. She tried to push me in front of the train and instead I like bumped that guy <laughs> onto the tracks. And there's two other guys who are like basically doing auga faces. <laughs> the yeah. dialogue is, hey, someone get this beautiful woman some help. <laughs> it's like it's like obviously that would be what would happen when her whole thing is just that she makes everybody horny, but it's like so such a like weird tonal jarring. <laughs> There is probably a horror movie to be written uh, about, like, a woman who is irresistible. Oh, definitely. And maybe already has, but um, that's what that John Stewart movie is about, right? (sighs) Is there a movie called Irresistible? Yeah, but it's like a politics movie. Right. Steve Carell, etc. Yeah. But yeah, so that's <laughs> that's what this is. Yeah, so we end we end this arc <laughs> with a to be continued, <laughs> even though this is part five of five. And Mr. Fear saying, by the way, did I mention that I know your wife? Right. A classic end. A, a, a classic satisfying conclusion. conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we Which do think- we do end on a cliffhanger going into uh, the next arc without fear and i assume they do that just because they want 100 to be the start of a new arc quote unquote yeah slash like i mean like i said this is in some ways like part one of act two of like the overarching sort of like story that has been going on through the whole run like it's not like the devil in cell block d ends on such a like satisfying conclusive note either i don't think right see, when yeah. does that one end 87 they, they do very much lead into one another um and yeah i think i think there was some kind of intention around 
issue 100 being like yeah there definitely was and that one is like jumbo sized and stuff as well right uh we'll talk about that certainly next time Uh um but yeah i mean and again it's like it's only really looking back on these that i have like maybe more of a negative opinion of them like in the moment i just like was like the narrative is very propulsive (laughs) like yeah they're very they're very entertaining for sure And which is kind of like all I really expect from a superhero comic. Like I don't necessarily expect it to be completely flawless and not have like any problems that come up when you kind of like hold up the magnifying lens or like subject it to some real scrutiny. But they're just like very entertaining. They're very readable. I think that in some ways like he's not he's not necessarily aspiring to do something that's so literary um or so so complex or deeper meaningful or anything and so i'm like kind of just like okay with you know there's there's some overarching ideas about fear that run through the whole thing where i'm like that's that's, that's more than i get from most superhero comics that's more yeah. than i got from his x-men yeah <laughs> And so, yeah, they're like, they're all, they're like, by superhero comic standards, like pretty much no notes. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing is like, it's interesting because usually I feel like so much of the criticism around superhero comics is devoted to the plotting where it's Mm -hmm. like, they shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't have killed this person. They shouldn't have put Mm -hmm. the superhero in this situation that it's funny to have a situation where it's like, when I step back and just look at the plotting, I'm like... This is kind of crazy. <laughs> this is kind, this is really crazy and like it's probably like kind of a bad idea to like do this with these characters and like you feel sort of like the limitations of the medium a little bit more especially in mm-hmm. terms of writing in a universe and carrying on someone's work. I think even more than writing in established lore that that is like something he like has issues with is where it's like this is where I've been left and I have to like get to where I want to go, mm-hmm. which sort, but I have to use like these characters basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, yeah, I think that that is like sort of where he struggles, but then everything else I'm like, this is great. Like I like the dialogue. I like the characters. I like the action. I like even like the, the plotting of the crime stuff I think is really good. And like, keeps me interested a lot more than a lot of crime stuff usually does. It's more the character plotting and I like sort of the superhero narrative that mm-hmm. becomes a little more. Yeah. Like you can, you can see why Darwin cook being like not a huge superhero guy, which is as we have previously observed kind of funny since he has the reputation for being the superhero guy. But you can see why, like, his feedback to Brew Baker was so often like, if you get rid of the superhero stuff, you really got a banger here. Because <laughs> it is sometimes just like, if if you didn't have to, like, resolve this with two superheroes fighting each other, if you didn't have to, like, have this person have superpowers or, like, what have you, if you didn't have to be part of this interconnected universe at points, even is as, as basic as it gets, then it would free you up to, I think, do some more, even, even, I guess I should say even more interesting or entertaining 
things because I think what he does is interesting and entertaining. And also it does like at points hit into the wall of the fact that at the end of the day, the primary genre is supposed to be superhero and it is supposed to be like set in the Marvel universe. Yeah. But when you're working with Daredevil, I feel like that, like I think that's why it is like sort of a uniquely good fit for him is that Mm -hmm. it is ostensibly a superhero story, but he can also do the things that he likes to do in the same way captain america as well but he almost makes captain america into mm-hmm. that book like with his bare hands like like he, he molds <laughs> captain america to fit his vision i feel like mm-hmm. whereas this is like it makes continuing sense. kind of the grand tradition of what daredevil has been for a long time yeah and is a very yeah. like logical fit in and of itself mm-hmm. yeah it's it's is sort of it just sort of makes sense for him in the same way that like Gotham Central just sort of makes sense for him but whereas Gotham Central is very much about the people who are not superheroes and and like the superhero element only has to really enter into it in sort of kind of a tertiary way I guess I would say in Daredevil it's like well the main character is a superhero and so if there's just going to be more kind of like superhero type stuff in it. Right. Yeah. And of course he is working with his Gotham central collaborator, Michael Lark here. Shout out to the homie. Yeah. I mean, the art Doing is great good. Work. Like this is much more, again, we talked about the X-Men stuff. Like this is more what I think of as like even 2010s. I feel like, like mm-hmm. there's a certain, especially the coloring I think is the main thing that I see differently is that like, there's less shiny coloring. Yeah, there is some of that in Devil in Cell Block D, although that's also a different colorist for a lot of those issues than are in some of the other ones, or at least for the very first issue. And I also feel like it makes more like sense, basically, because it feels it makes everyone feel like they're under like really harsh fluorescent lights in a really institutional environment, like a prison. Sure. And so it's like, yeah, everything's kind of shiny because like the light is really bad. Yeah. Um, and, and even like it tracks and like follows over to, because it's like, well, yeah, the, like the light is not great when you are in jail in an office building at like 11 o'clock at night, like <laughs> lit by like your car dash lights sitting in the rain. <laughs> sure. Like um, it, it sort of just like makes more sense and is palatable for that reason. And then once um, I think it's Gaudiano who does most of the coloring and then Matt Hollingsworth is also uh, on some of these issues. And those are just like two, Oh no, Gaudiano's the inker. Yeah, they it lists Michael Larkin, Stefano Gaudiano as artist, Matt Holly yeah. as colorist. Yeah, so it's it's um Diarmada who does the Devil in Cell Block D, and then I think Hollingsworth takes over after that. And he is just like a has a more modern sensibility, even for like this kind of era, and is yeah. still, you know, is is a much in-demand colorist today, in part because I think he is he he just has kind of a more classic and timeless effect that he's able to achieve. Yeah, like looking at looking at some of the stuff from like the that arc, the to the devil his due arc, mm-hmm. it looks much more like something I would see today and be like that that's normal. Like it could, it could come out today and I wouldn't 
be like that's a very dated art style. Yeah. And then Michael Lark's art, it almost reminds me of David Mazzuccelli. Is that reasonable to say? That is reasonable because I was reading um, an interview with him and Brubaker where he was basically saying, like, I was reading a lot of David Mazzuccelli's stuff because he likes he liked kind of the acrobatic element that he thought that Mazzuccelli really did well uh, in a way that was sort of different from some of the other Daredevil artists. So... I do think he's trying to channel a lot of that. Like anytime you see him like kind of doing a dive, basically he's, he's uh, going for that. I do think that he's also picked in part because he has some sort of stylistic overlap with Alex Maleev, just in terms of having a kind of like grittier and more grounded style and a little bit more of a photorealistic style as compared to some of the other artists of the time. And of course, obviously, he's had a very productive collaborative relationship with Brubaker in the past. What was that? Um, While they did Scene of the Crime together, which was his first, um, Brubaker's first kind of like big solo thing for Dark Horse. And he was the regular artist on Gotham Central. He was? Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. It's a great, great get, great creative team. I mean, he is one of the, I'm not going to say swaggy a third time on this episode, <laughs> but he is one of the great artists, certainly in my mind, not having seen, read a lot of his stuff. I do also find that like he, he, he f- compares very favorably to some of the stuff we saw in X-Men just sure. in his like sensibility even because like as I was going through a thing that I appreciated a lot was like, so obviously like the first big title page for the devil in cell block D he has like this four panel split. That's very like evocative of bars, but he does these grids like throughout. It's like a 12 panel grid of three by four, like three, three um, panel rows four three panel rows, which I was like, he really tends to lean on it in the prison scenes again, which like, keeps that sort of evocation of the bars going. Um, But then when you get to the like big reveal with Vanessa, her whole thing is like, I like I played chess with Wilson Fisk and then now I've just played chess with you. And then you go back and see how often he does that 12 panel grid for the talking head scenes and the way that it takes on that sort of like checkerboard or chessboard pattern with like, you know, alternating characters creating that kind of right that, that, that like check effect. Yeah, it's not even like black and white but usually, it's but it's like contrasting. It's like sh- yeah, shot reverse shot between the two characters, and it just like adds a whole another layer where I'm like, I don't, I I'm curious if he already knew that that was kind of like where they were going to be going, or if he just liked that as both sort of like this this visually evokes like prison bars on the page and is just like an easy way to do these long kind of talking head sequences and then maybe it was just kind of like fortuitous that that the the sort of chessboard motif ended up being kind of like part of the big villain reveal but it was something that i had just like been aware of sort of right from the get-go that he was doing a lot especially during the prison scenes and then when it comes up like I made note of it when it cropped up during the conversation with Vanessa. And then when she started talking about the chessboard stuff, I was like, 
oh, is he like a genius? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, the greatest I, layout man of all time. <laughs> you notice that stuff a lot more than I do, like the way that a page is laid out and like the way that panels are divided. Um, but that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> It, I, I will say, though, I mean, like we talked about with Stiller on the Persepolis episode that sometimes I'm like, but was that intentional or was that just like how things shook out? And I did also find myself kind of second guessing because I was reading that same interview with him and Brubaker and they were like specifically it was done like right before the first issue came out with the like them as the new team. And they were looking at like the first five pages, which are so um like he fights all these guys in the rain and the interviewer and Brubaker are both like, Oh, Michael, you're so smart with like what you do with like the rain uh, and how you like change it to really help like lead the eye, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, well, to be honest, like I basically just have like a rain filter in Photoshop and I just kind of change it around willy nilly so that it doesn't like <laughs> look really boring. And like I'm using the exact same filter on every single page. And like there's not really any intentionality for like how I laid out the raindrops. I just kind of like moved it until it didn't look weird. Right. <laughs> so and so I just am conscious of like how sometimes artists are just like, well, I just don't want it to have the exact same like, you know, every yeah. single panel looks the exact same because I didn't change the rain filter. <laughs> but that's just I also feel like that's just like an artist thing where it's like, mm -hmm. I like you just know what looks good and like you have that intuitive sense of like yeah there is right because it's like if you are if you are a professional artist who has been like doing visual storytelling like that for a long time maybe you're not looking at each page being like how can I use the rain to like lead the eye but when you're like playing with the filter until you get to the point where you're like oh yeah that's like that looks better you're it's probably a lot thing. of time yeah like you're gonna stop at the point where it looks better to you because you're like, oh, that's a good like you're not consciously thinking this like really maintains the panel flow. But you are like that looks good as a like yeah. kind of holistic the composition visual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we should get to awards because there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I, uh, I didn't actually look at these up, so uh, feel free to take it. Well, I have them here Uh 2007, he wins the Harvey Award for Best Writer for Daredevil. Uh, and then he also wins the Eyes, because I guess they give it for one book. Um, and then he wins the Eisner for Best Writer for Daredevil, Captain America, and Criminal. And then 2008, he also wins Best Writer for Captain America, Criminal, Daredevil, and Iron Fist. And then he also wins in 2010, but I believe that's technically next episode. Or are we into 2010 yes. now? Yes. No, we stopped in 2007. Oh, really? Stop. Yeah. Back. Um, so not yet. And then he is nominated in 2007. I guess he's nominated twice for Best Continuing Series for Daredevil. Yeah, so he's nominated for Captain Best America. Writer and. Uh, oh, yeah, I get, he must have been nominated twice. That does happen sometimes. Uh, let me look up the 2007 Eisner Awards. But yes, like extremely acclaimed. And like, I think it's very telling for the Harvey specifically because he wins in 2006 for Best Writer Captain America and then wins in 2007 for Best Writer Daredevil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. Yes, the, he was indeed nominated twice. Yes. Captain America, Daredevil, Naoki Urasawa's Monster, The Walking Dead, Young Avengers, and they all, of course, lose to famously continuing series, All-Star <laughs> Superman. <laughs> Did people think there were going to be like 100 issues of All-Star Superman? So... Yeah, the the Eisners are so weird sometimes about like, I think we, I can't remember what it was, but we talked about something about this recently where something won for best limited series. And I was like, that was definitely not like a limited series <laughs> when it was released. It right. was like an 18 issue run of something that I was like, that was not a limited series. Like they didn't come out and be like one of 18. Like if that sh- series is a limited series, then every series is a limited series right. in that like it they all eventually end. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think the criteria for continuing series is basically just that like, it's not eligible for new series. I.e., like, it had already started when the last Eisners were awarded. Right. right. Just a couple of other things. This is the, this is the same Eisner where uh, Darwin Cook wins best single issue for Batman the Spirit number one with Jeff Loeb mm-hmm. and then also wins, uh, well, best graphic album reprint is Absolute DC, The New Frontier. And then I do see a couple of other things. Like, we'll come back to these these Eisners again, I think. Oh, and mm-hmm. uh, Bob Burden and Rick Curie's Gumby is best publication for uh, younger yes, audience, classic. which we have talked about before. <laughs> but many, I do see many times. at least two other things from this Eisner specifically that we probably will be covering in the future. Uh, yes, three, I don't doubt it. Or three, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is also the year when... Um, Civil War number one wins best single issue at the Harveys, which is crazy. <laughs> we, <laughs> oh, this is so crazy. The the because uh, it's best single issue or story, so it beats out Fun Home, <laughs> Pride of Baghdad, another uh, I assume graphic memoir or graphic novel called Mom's Cancer, and then Ganges number one, Schizo number four, and Solo number eleven. <laughs> such a crazy category <laughs> that's when where he meets chewbacca yeah uh wait hold on solo number 11 i think that's actually the big uh, betrayal by kira issue um because <laughs> that's getting pretty close to the end of the run yeah when she teams up with <laughs> what's his name yeah the sun guy tom zartzman <laughs> you imagine if his name was Tom Sertzman? Of course, his um, name is... Uh, we all know his... We all love... little so guy, scared. Paul Bettany, is Dryden Voss. Of course. Of course. Darth Maul's most faithful servant, Dryden Whoa. Voss. And of course, as we all know... Michael K. Williams originally cast, but was removed from the film because he was unable to return for reshoots. And the character was reworked from being a motion capture alien, described as by Williams as half mountain lion, half human, to a scarred near-human alien life form. Yeah, so Civil War <laughs> certainly is happening during this. Yes, we mentioned before we recorded that we should mention some more at some point, because I was like... We're going to run into some civil war here, but then it's like, it's 
barely mentioned once where like a it cop is barely is mentioned like, he's not registered yeah it is barely mentioned which was also true in x-men but in civil war at least they're specifically like they have like one whole scene where the x-men are like we will not be participating <laughs> <laughs> um just in fact it's in the same we will not be in here yeah it's uh it's the same issue that um Matt Murdock appears even though he's supposed to be in jail. So oh, that's funny. Civil War number three comes out the same month as uh Daredevil number eighty-seven, I wanna I say. I saw the eighty-seven, it said that it ties in with a one shot of some description. So I think there is a um a, like Civil War one shot for Iron Fist where it like shows him being Daredevil becoming Daredevil basically yeah and that is indeed the one where they fight and it is revealed that uh, that it was Danny Rand all along but right. a very cool that panel issue... of Daredevil with the glowing fists yeah we we do love that um but so that issue ends with uh, Matt Murdock adopting his classic alter ego, Mike Murdock, which is uh, <laughs> his own twin who he made up to help him preserve his secret identity in the 60s, I want to say, or maybe the 70s. But so he leaves the country. But then that same month, there is a scene in Civil War number three where we see Captain America, Hercules, Daredevil and Goliath uh all with like new identities that they've made up because they are continuing to uh, practice superheroism as unregistered heroes. It's like um, a Ronin thing. Yeah, not no, not really. Not, so we've got Captain America rocking like uh, a thick, thick stash, and he is adopting a new identity as Brett Hendrick, security supervisor at a shopping mall in Queens. Uh, <laughs> Hercules has his hair tied back in a ponytail, and he is now Victor Tiegler, an IT consultant for a major international finance corporation. <laughs> I forgot that was his wow. thing. I cannot imagine how bad a cover job that is where it's like, and for Hercules, I'm thinking IT consultant. <laughs> uh, Daredevil is now Cooper Patent, an engineer from Long Island. And Goliath is Rockwell Dodsworth, a community outreach worker. So they are in a like three page section. I meant nomad to be clear, not Ronan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nomad adjacent for sure. They're in like this three panel section where we see them like practicing their new identities and talking about how, you know, it sucks uh, that they have to like be underground now. And then they like get wind of a crime and we see them running out of the diner, changing out of their like new secret identities into their superhero costumes, uh, which is really funny because Daredevil's like wearing a sweater vest as he pulls on his Daredevil mask. That's funny. I think I have seen that actually. Yeah, this is this is like much discussed where it's like, why is Daredevil here when he has like been in jail for months? He goes directly from jail to Monaco. To to Monaco, yeah. Um, Because he then is also subsequently, in a later issue, he is like arrested and there's like a whole bit where 
he like is brought before Tony Stark in uh in like the prison and they're like he's got something in his mouth <laughs> and he opens his mouth and it's like a silver coin and Tony Stark is like a silver coin he's like that makes 31 pieces of silver <laughs> Judas Tui <laughs> talked about this before um, for sure and and is taken away so then it's like okay wait so he was in jail got out had like brunch with Captain America to develop this new secret identity, but then immediately left for Monaco. But then someone in a daredevil costume was arrested and gave like the most laborious, uh, like pre-prepared burn conceivable to Tony Stark. But was that Matt Murdock or was it Danny Rand? And in either case, they are like still running around in their own book like not being in the prison that they're supposed to be in. Right. So there was lots of, uh, yeah, lots of confusion about what the timeline exactly was supposed to be, but certainly civil war is, uh, is happening. And so is infinite crisis. So it's, you know, a classic, a classic era. Yeah. It really is like, you know like i feel like this is like around the time that i was getting interested in comic books mostly because like both civil war and infinite crisis i feel like were if not like mainstream news then certainly like big enough news that like the entertainment sphere was like very Mm -hmm. i think spider-man unmasking was probably mainstream news yeah i think spider-man unmasking was like in the new york times or something i would have to imagine it would be the bugle's not scooping them on this one. Sure. I kind of like <laughs> the I don't want to say the last gasp for comics, but like <laughs> probably the most relevant comics have been since that point, right? Like because yeah, the movies I mean, just start eating their lunch. Yeah, and it's also sort of like for a long time they kind of like got their publicity by basically like spoiling their own stories in right, like the news. Gonna happen. Yeah. Um, so like around that same time, it was like Captain America's dying was like in the news before right. it happened. And which it, that is still kind of their like go to move. But now it's just like it's on like Hollywood reporters heat vision page <laughs> instead right. of like in the New York Times. Right. Like I think people just got got wind of like, oh, this is like some like they do this all the time. <laughs> Like, it's not necessarily the craziest thing in the world because they do something like this, like, every year and then have, like, reset it back to what it was like before within two years. Right. I mean, especially it feels like the timeline for that is becoming more and more compressed with, like, every passing day. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any sales intel that you want to i do i do i made uh, a remark before we started recording which was wow that's crazy <laughs> and that was because so the last issue of bendis's daredevil is where did i put that one okay yes so the last issue of bendis's daredevil sells forty four thousand two hundred thirty seven units the first issue of Brubaker's Daredevil does have a spike up to 53,000, but then the second issue is back to 46,798. And then 
number 99, which is the last issue we covered, is 47,382. So the book basically just keeps selling like the exact same amount every month for like years, <laughs> which is like a pretty, a pretty, all books like kind of eventually settle into a bit of a zone. Um, once the, the creative team has like kind of settled in, especially a longer running book like this, but it's crazy that like there was only one month of a spike. The spike was not that big and it almost it like the very next month stabilized back to like almost the exact same number as what it was before. So yeah, like that it's that's just very interesting to me in terms of like how much I think consistency people saw in terms of like the tone and the quality between Bendis's and Brubaker's in that like people who didn't like what Bendis's or like what Bendis was doing if they like came to check out Brubaker's just were like okay, it's just going to still be more of the same and people who did like it were like oh, perfect, it's just going to be more of the same. Sure. <laughs> and like the number just like did not respond to the creative team changeover and like keeps plugging away, which is hard. I feel like even with like a celebrated run, you usually see a drop off from one issue to the next of like as much as like 50% even sometimes. Right. So the, this like weird, there's just like one little blip and it's not very big. And then the fact that it also corresponded with a change in creative teams i was just like this is kind of crazy that it just like did not react to this change at all yeah that is funny but then it's also like i know that it doesn't necessarily matter what the quality is but i feel like it would be like it makes sense where it's like this is just doing the same thing with a different good writer Mm -hmm. i think that she'll have to do it for today i gotta go to work uh (sighs) Famously, this beats working, uh, and or it's a living. <laughs> uh huh. I don't know. Cut that out. Don Tootin, <laughs> Pete Crack, Shapu, Squirty Dicks, BM. <laughs> I forgot. <about> <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Uh, I talked about this on High Flow Low Ceiling last week, but my mom texted me our mother we both have the same mother uh being like when you say to like where do i do that and i did not have a good answer (laughs) i did find out that you can rate podcasts on spotify so if you listen on spotify give us five stars i believe Um, apple podcasts as well yeah certainly got the runs pod on twitter got the runs pod at gmail.com uh you can follow me at c house and jan on twitter uh, follow and listen to High Floor Low Ceiling. Listen to Bevy of Bevies. Of course, famously, a certain festive gourd was recently celebrated. You are performatively drinking a Coke. What? <laughs> <laughs> Performative? <laughs> okay, Mr. Piggy. Uh, that will do it for today. Until, oh, next week we are covering daredevil again issues 100 to 119 and 500 uh we'll talk about some renumbering again i always enjoy talking about (laughs) but until that day comes (laughs) to to be be continued does the name crank
France didn't mean anything to you. <laughs> and honestly, sometimes you 